Does representation matter? How important is it to see people of diverse backgrounds in various roles in the sports industry, both on and off the field? What do we do about the pay gap in professional sports? What happens when athletes are activists? We'll discuss these topics and even more in today's episode of Inscribing Inclusion with my guest, sports lawyer, Luke Fedlam. And we are live. Hello and welcome to episode three of Inscribing Inclusion. I am so excited to have our very first podcast guest. Uh, it is a good friend and good person all around, sports attorney Luke Fedlum. Welcome, Luke. Yes, I'm so pumped to be your guest. I'm so pumped to be a part of episode three. Let's go. So we should probably warn the audience that Luke and I both <laughs> tend to have a pretty high level of energy. Um, so keep up the best that you can. This, this episode is going to be great. We're going to get into some wonderful topics. Um, yes. And without further ado, I want to just jump right in, Luke. And so let's talk a little bit about you. And if you'll give the listeners a quick bio, kind of tell them who you are, what you do, how you ended up where you are now. Yeah. Um, so you want me to talk about me? Yes, I can do that. Absolutely. So um, I, I guess I could probably take the rest of the hour. I'm going to give you the Cliff's Notes version. Um, and so so basically, I, I'm originally from upstate New York. I went to school at Wake Forest for undergrad. Um, I did law school at Ohio State, uh, but it wasn't straight through. So after undergrad, I had the opportunity to work in an investment firm in Philly, uh, was there for, planned to be there for a year, was there about five years, uh, got recruited from there to go to a sports management startup in Miami, Florida. And that was my kind of entree into working with athletes. It was on the financial side and it was, you know, kind of at a time when we were going through the subprime mortgage crisis leading into the great recession. And for me, it really galvanized in me this desire to want to protect athletes right it was so much more than just like you know you know gaining eight percent when the market's only gaining six percent or only losing five percent when the market's losing ten right like that didn't do much for me but this idea of athletes who are getting taken advantage of by various advisors and other people in their lives uh, for me it was how can i how can i be that change that i want to see uh, with these folks and so went on to law school and um yeah so what I do now is I'm at Porter Wright. I lead the firm sports law practice and uh, I'm a partner there, which is so great to say. Um, and, and really for, for me, it's, it's, I'm not an agent. I think that's something that comes up quite a bit. I'm just an attorney who really acts as like general counsel to individual professional athletes. And my clients are across the country, uh, really in pretty much every sport, men's and women's, um, and then uh, overseas as well. But here's the other thing that I do. So, so that's kind of you know one hat that I wear. The other is about five years ago, I started a company called Anomaly Sports Group. And Anomaly is focused on the education of athletes. So working with athletes on the financial side, working with athletes on the legal side, you start to see trends. You see ways in which athletes either are lacking in certain 
personal professional development skills or commonalities in how they're being taken advantage of or how people are trying to take advantage of them. And my focus has been, how can I take the learning that I have working with athletes one-on-one as their lawyer or on the financial side, you know, for the past 15 plus years and translate that into workshops, presentations, conversations uh, to be able to educate groups of athletes. So we've had the fortune of working with the NBA, multiple NFL teams, the NCAA has brought us in for their elite symposia and uh, for basketball and football. And then we've been able to work with various athletic departments across the country, just again, trying to educate groups of athletes uh, so that they can be uh, in a situation where they're educated and ultimately protected and can make those decisions that can help them, you know, be successful uh, outside of uh, their sport. That's that was a lot. I feel like I just said a lot. So. But that's great because, so I think that's awesome. I, I am most proud of and interested in the work that you do with Anomaly. I know lawyers, right? Yeah. I'm a lawyer. I know a lot about what lawyers do, but Anomaly is interesting to me. One, because it's, a, it's an anomaly. Look at that wordplay. Hello. Come on, branding. Yes. But also um, as a person who is a sports fan and I have watched uh, one of my, one of my favorite shows that like I love to watch, but don't love to watch is like uh, 30 for 30. Yeah, uh, they did it. They did one that was 30 for 30 Brook and they featured basketball players and football players and baseball players. And these folks had, you know, multimillion dollar contracts and then nothing. And all of them told a story about how they got to, you know, from being a superstar with tons of money to being broke. And a lot of their stories started similarly in that they were not people of means before they became famous athletes. You know, they came from various backgrounds but often it was their parents had just you know very regular jobs or if they had jobs at all so they came from very minimal means and then suddenly they're 18 19 24 and they've got millions of dollars and then they have money and a lot of them it was because they didn't know they didn't know that their agent was taking more than their percentage or they didn't know that uh they don't have to invest in their cousin's car wash or (laughs) their uncle's barbershop or, you know, that sort of thing. And so that's why I I get very excited about Anomaly because that you all do there, the education is so important and it is far beyond what they get in the classroom and possibly would not get. And your focus from what I understand the company to be is just to educate. You're not their agent. You just want them to know. Yeah, listen, that's it. I mean, you you hit it right on the head. It is to try to help athletes be the anomaly, right? I mean, and, and the idea is, that if we can help change kind of the statistics. So 2009, Sports Illustrated wrote this article, how and why professional athletes go broke. And it really was kind of this seminal study on, you know, athletes, their finances, financial distress. And and this is 2009. So we're, you know, 12 years past this. And I think the numbers have changed a bit, but I think there are absolutely still some truths in the numbers. The 78% of basketball, or excuse me, of football players were broke or experiencing financial distress within two years of when they finished playing and 60% of basketball within five years of when they finished playing. And I think there's a whole host of reasons why, right? I mean, we could spend all this time talking about it, being taken advantage of uh, by others, spending, poor decision-making, you know, and we could go on down the list, but I want to be able to focus on how can we change those numbers? How can we, how can we help athletes kind of be that anomaly? How can we help them be, be that change out there? So, that is it. We just focus on, you know, educating athletes in groups, uh, one-on-one and, and, and broader groups to try to help give them that 
that experience, that exposure, and really that education that they need. I'm going to get on a soapbox for a second because I truly believe that it is an ethical imperative, right? An ethical imperative that we educate student athletes and professional athletes with real world practical education that they need to be successful outside of their sport, like period. And oftentimes the people around athletes are hyper-focused on the sport. And when you talked about, you know, athletes who are young and transitioning in to sports in their late teens, early 20s, mid 20s, they also are hyper-focused on their sport. They just want to, I just want to play. I just want to focus right now on my sport. And when everybody's focused on the sport and nobody's focused on making sure that you're protected, making sure that you are becoming that athlete CEO, that you're becoming that business owner of this business that is your life in sports, um, that's when problems can arise. So yeah, we try to we try to see if we can change that just through education. That's awesome. So kind of talking about when you have athletes who are there hyper-focused on their sport, and we know that we have tons of college athletes, and then we know what the ranks and numbers are for that conversion into the professional athletic space. And we talked about folks coming from, from different economic levels. And a lot of the focus is on how do we get to the professional sports level to make this money and everything is invested in that space. Let's talk a little bit about the importance of young people and athletes seeing diverse people in professions connected to sports, but not on the field or not on the court. So the agents, the lawyers, the accountants, the media people, the, you know, there's so many things. Let's talk about the importance of that. It's important. (laughs) Now, I know you brought me on to say more than that. I mean, that's, that's really what it is, right? It's so critically important. Um, And, and, and it is about giving young people an example, an example of how you could have a career in whatever college sports, professional sports and not be the athlete, right? Not be the talent on the court, on the field, or what have you. Um, there is, um, there are a lot of organizations that are focused on this notion, right? And, and you brought up, um, you know, even in the media, and there's an organization that I serve on the board of called Rising Media Stars, and Rising Media Stars focuses on diverse talent, uh, diverse women, and trying to help them have opportunities uh, in media and sports. And it's just, it's, it's specifically for that reason, right? Because young people need to see that. I have the joy, um, I mean, literally having a, a, a 10-year-old son, a six-year-old daughter, and my son telling me that he wants to be a sports lawyer. Like yes. that to me is everything, right? Like, I don't care whether he ends up doing it, but the fact that he's 10 years old and can say, I want to do this, because he sees what I do, like that to me is what it's all about. And, and here's the, the, the best part, right? If you don't want to go to law school, great. Don't go to law school. There's still plenty of jobs, right? You know, and, and you mentioned a bunch of them, but if you think about it, accounting, mm-hmm. listen, professional teams, college athletic departments have people who focus on accounting and the numbers that literally is like everything, right? Technology. We think about just technology and how, how quickly technology is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, so whatever it is, you know, uh, uh, wearable technology, right? Fitness tracking of athletes. Like, I mean, the the analytics of the athlete experience these days, there's so much involved in that. And we haven't even talked about esports. Right. You know, my, my son, right? He's, again, he's really into Fortnite. And I always try to tell him like, 
Let's talk about the business side of Fortnite. Let's talk about why did Fortnite get kicked off of the Apple, you know, kind of iTunes, whatever platform, right? And, and let's talk about how money flows and all this. So in, in my, my, one of the greatest joys that I have in what I do, and I, I, I would argue that I probably do this than, more than most lawyers, is meeting with young people, mm -hmm. whether it's somebody in high school, somebody in college, or somebody in law school. And I never met anybody that does what I do when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. um, shoot, I never met anybody that I anybody that does what I do until maybe I was in law school. Um, mm -hmm. And and the idea of being able to share what I do with other people to give them ideas about where their career could go, or even just saying like, I don't want to do what he does, but maybe he's got some ideas about how I could do some other things. And, and like, to me, it's about exposure. And how can we expose young people to opportunities that exist in this field? Because the last thing I'll say about this, unless you ask me more questions, <laughs> is literally the fact that when you look at college sports right now, we're undergoing, without a doubt, the most changing, evolving, and developing time that college sports has ever experienced. If you think right now, there are issues of gambling and gaming and as it has that how that relates to college sports, issues of name, image and likeness, issues of how do sports deal with social justice? How does social justice impact coaches and recruiting and, and all that comes with that? Um, transfer portal changes, you know, schools not necessarily managing their funds properly and now are cutting, you know, various teams. I mean, there's so much change and we didn't, in esports, right? There's a, a college esports league, in addition to different schools having esports majors. And side note, I think esports is most definitely going to be one of the fastest growing spectator sports, um, in addition to just one of the fastest growing sports industries that we're going to see within the next couple of years. So all of this change is coming, and that's just the college level, let alone the changes coming to the professional level. There, change creates opportunity, and I just hope that young people continue to see the opportunity that exists in sports in various professions. That's awesome. Let's run back to though that name image likeness piece, right? Because yes. uh, we talked about Anomaly doing education and now all this shifting and changing as it relates to particularly with college athletes and name image likeness. They are or have been, at least certainly during my time in college and, and after, uh, you would see folks with I went to the Ohio State University for undergrad and you would see folks walking around with jerseys on with numbers and names of people that were on the field. And those people that were on the field, for instance, let's call out like Eddie George, who recently was named head coach of another school. Well, we won't hold that against him. But, uh, you know, there would be people. He picked the HBCU, though. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's, that's cool. That's true. Um, yeah. He he people walk around with a with a George 27 Ohio State jersey on and he's on the field playing. And I'm willing to, I know I can say that he was not getting a dollar from those jersey sales with his name on them that his mother and father gave him, right? Um, yeah. But now as we see the shifting and the changing and we see, you know, current at, current college athletes might be able to actually get some money off of the, the money that's being made, if, if I'm understanding that correctly. Yes and okay. no, right? Okay. So, so I'm going to try to do a primer on name, image, and likeness in two minutes. Let's see if we can make this happen. So name, image, and likeness changes, yes, are absolutely coming to college sports where student athletes will be able to commercialize, monetize um, their brands and make money off of 
um, opportunities that their non-athlete student counterparts have been able to do forever. So that's broadly speaking, yes, that's going to happen. Now, how is that going to happen is the interesting aspect. So you've got this idea of first, the NCAA came up with their working group. Well, let me take a step back. First, actually, California had their Senate Bill 206 that got signed into law that said, hey, student athletes in California will be able to make money off of their name, image, and likeness. We'll make this go into effect in 2023. That started the NCAA saying, okay, we got to do something. So the NCAA puts together a working group, all that kind of stuff. The working group comes out with their recommendations, and then they're set. The NCAA Division One was set to vote on the rules, these rule changes in January, January 11th, I believe. Uh, that was a Monday. On that Friday, they get a letter from the Department of Justice saying, "Hold up, um, there may be some antitrust violations, you know, here, and you know, I would they would not recommend uh, implementing these these rule changes right away." Simultaneously, the Supreme Court uh, the United, of the United States uh, took on and granted cert to a case called NCAA versus Alston. It was dealing with antitrust issues with the NCAA, first uh, NCAA case in front of the Supreme Court since 1984, which was also an antitrust case. Um, and so there's a lot of question in terms of how far this Supreme Court decision is actually going to go. Is it going to be very narrow um, or is it going to be something that's much more broad that affects amateurism and who can define uh, amateurism and all this kind of stuff? So then the federal government, Congress has proposed a couple different pieces of legislation to talk about um, student athletes being able to be compensated for the name, image and likeness. Most people say that that's not going to happen until at the earliest late summer, early fall. Uh, and states have gotten in and said, guess what? Florida came in and said, July 1st, our name, image, and likeness law is going into effect. So schools in Florida, hey, student athletes, you'll be able to get compensated. Mississippi said, what? Hold up. Other states are doing the same thing. Okay, we're going to get in on the action. So their, their laws go into effect on um, July 1st. And then you have other states that are trying to push things through. All right. Iowa is, is close. Nebraska's already passed legislation. As I mentioned before, California's passed legislation. Um, New Jersey's passed legislation. And you've got a host of other states that are also pushing through because they said, hey, we don't want to be at a recruiting disadvantage. So that's all of name, image, and likeness. Now, here's the interesting part. Different states have different nuances around what's allowed, not allowed. Most states and some of the federal legislation that's been presented will say that student athletes won't be able to enter into a deal with their school. So which would mean then, hey, you're not going to be able to get paid off of our jersey sales. Um, but, um, you know, they can still create their own deals, right, and license their own name, image, and likeness out, out in the marketplace. So it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be a pretty big mess this fall as these things get, get sorted because, hey, you know, you could have a conference or you could have a state that decides to sue uh, for an injunction uh, against Florida, Mississippi, from you know, stopping them from, from uh, enacting their laws. And so it's going to be uh, very interesting to see what happens. But whew, that was about three minutes, a little bit of a primer on where we're at with name, image, and likeness. Well, and this gives me an opportunity, though, to kind of pause where we are. And uh, because you gave us that primer on name, image, and likeness, I would like to tell the listeners that you have your own podcast 
um, called Protecting Your Possibilities. And I believe that you have an entire episode where you get into name, image, and likeness on your podcast. So for the listeners, I will make sure to put um, the name of Luke's podcast, Protecting Your Possibilities, and a link in the show notes so that after you listen to this episode, you can go listen to that episode on his pla- on his podcast and a couple of other episodes too, because he covers great things. Yes, thank you. I like that. It's Find perfect. Together. Yes. All right. So we've talked about uh, making sure that student athletes can see themselves in spaces and places beyond the field, making sure that they are educated and that they know what's available to them as student athletes and building their brand and protecting that company that is built on who they are. Want to spend a little bit of time um, and trying not to be super heavy, but want to spend a little bit of time talking about athletes as activists both at the college and professional level. Um, This is not something that's unfamiliar, I think, to us because we have the historical perspective of a Muhammad Ali who decided that he was not going to, you know, be bothered with the Vietnam War and and had to sit out a couple of years um, and was stripped of his titles. Or um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who um, is an author and an activist and former basketball player. Um, Megan Rapinoe, who constantly is pushing for equality for women in the sport of soccer. Um, Coach uh, Steve Kerr, Coach Greg Popovich, um, who often speak out on issues of injustice um, because they understand how it impacts the folks that play on the teams where they work. We also hear people who say things like, well, they should just play sports as though these athletes are not human. Um, And we've even seen instances where professional athletes who typically people would recognize walking down the street are pulled over and encounter the police and have very interesting interactions. What are you seeing in, in, the, in the sports industry that's kind of, I think, showing more of this shifting of athletes are being very um, particular about how they engage with things off the court and, and social justice issues and pay equity issues and, and those sorts of things? Yeah, I, I think it, this is um, such a, a, a deep and rich conversation to get into. And I, I hope that I, I give it justice from, from at least from my vantage point. And, and that is, we have this convergence of a lot of different things that are happening, right? When you look at it, I mean, social media has been around for what, 10 to 15 years? Um, you know, so it's relatively new. And we have this ability where we have various media outlets, Players Tribune and others where athletes can share their perspectives in their own voice. um, And and it doesn't have to go through the filter of a third party media reporter. Um, And I think that when that happens and issues of social injustice occur, you have this opportunity for athletes in ways that they've never been able to necessarily as effectively do collectively be engaged in the conversation. So when, when we talk about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, we talk about Muhammad Ali, we talk about others in, in history, oftentimes we refer to the one person or the two, right? Um, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, um, you know, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, like we can, we can name individuals, but it wasn't as collective, right, as what we see now. What we see now, I think, is a couple of things. I think we see that, that athletes are coming together 
in making some decisions together about how they will address and or react to what we're seeing in, in society. But just as importantly, if not more importantly, we're seeing athletes who are fed up with what they're seeing in society. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, let, let's, just, let's just think about this for a second. We're sitting here tonight having this conversation. And last year, the NBA in a bubble, um, after already um, Ahmaud Arbery was killed, Breonna Taylor was killed, George Floyd was killed, and you have Jacob Blake in, in Kenosha mm-hmm. shot seven times by the police. Mm-hmm. They stopped playing. Mm-hmm. They, they said, we are not going to play. And the NBA backed them up, right? Yeah. So that's another aspect that's, that's different. And we know that the NBA and the NFL as leagues are different, the NBA being a little bit more progressive. Yeah. But I'm, we're sitting here tonight having this conversation. And while we're having this conversation, an alert pops up on my phone that the individual police officer who actually shot Blake seven times has been cleared of everything and is back on duty. So, I, so, so now, you know, here we are in this place. And also uh, the TV that, that um, viewers, unfortunately, you, you can't see us, but I, there's a TV to my left that I'm literally seeing images of people of, uh, you know, Dante Wright's family meeting George Floyd's family because they both experienced death at the hands of police as, as, as you know, Black people in America. And we're, we're dealing with that as society. So I think there's a, a general recognition by athletes that they have a platform, that they have a voice. And like so many people in America, they are fed up with what they are seeing as this disparate, you know, treatment of people of color in society. We can take that on to what's happened to Asian Americans in our society right now. And athletes, leagues stepping up and being vocal about that. Now, that's something that we haven't historically seen. We've seen individuals like we talked about, but we haven't seen more of the collective. And it's interesting because I think all of this that we're talking about comes together in a unique way, right? It's the idea that athletes are empowered. Athletes are recognizing their power in ways that they maybe haven't been able to in the past and therefore are using their voice uh, in a way to effect positive change. Which I love um, when you hear about, you know, various NBA players coming together to open up voting locations and yeah. you know, we're making change. And, and again, I think you, you hit on something very important is that we've seen this before, but it was usually one person. Um, but now there is, they are, um, they do feel empowered and the collective, um, be it athletes, be it lawyers, be it any of us in general society, it's, it's the collective coming together and saying, these are things that we don't agree with or these injustices can no longer stand. And now we need to move forward and do something better, something that's right. different. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I think it's important too, to recognize that this is a cross sport. Mm-hmm. Like this is, this is a cross sport. One of, the, one of the things that I've loved is, you know, in the WNBA, yeah. looking at the Atlanta dream, And the stand that they took regarding their owner and said, we're we're not going to stand for this. And they're going to actively campaign against their owner, who was a U.S. senator, a sitting U.S. senator, to to vote for and elect a black male Democrat in Georgia. Right. I mean, this is 
this is unbelievable. And, and it was their engagement to do that. And then fast forward, you have someone like uh, uh, Renee Montgomery, who yeah. decided to opt out of the season and say, yeah. I want to focus this season on social justice issues. And not only did she do that and do that swimmingly, she also then said, oh, you know what? Let, I'm going to buy the dream too. So yeah. now I can be an owner along with a couple other folks. Right. And, and, and so change is, is, is it's, it's really exciting to see how this happens across sports. One of the things that just as exciting, I think is also just as disappointing. And I will share like one of the moments that was, was a, a challenge for me was after Jacob Blake, after Jacob Blake was shot in Kenosha, um, so many sports, so many athletes said we're not playing. And, you know, we know what the NBA did, um, you know, various uh, major league baseball teams, et cetera. But what was sad was other athletes engaging, especially athletes of color. And I think about um, in tennis, um, you know, tennis players who said, hey, you know what, we're not going to we're going to stop playing. And I just remember that time um, like Naomi Osaka and like reading her social media post. But then the comments that are coming from people, um, we really are in a, a, a place in society at a time in American history where um, we're so divided. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned it earlier about how people want to say, hey, just focus on sports. But it's so hard to say, I'm going to I'm going to take everything that's going on in society and completely ignore it. I'm going to extricate myself completely from the world that I live in when I get in my car after playing in this basketball game, playing in this tennis match or what have you, and get in my car and drive to wherever and have to, you know, pass a police officer and instantly grab the, you know, steering wheel at 10 and two, both hands on. What's my plan? How am I going to deal with this? If I get pulled over, where's my phone? What well, all these kind of things. Like, I mean, to me, it's just, it's just, it's just something that um, I love that I love to see athletes engaging in their, um, in their kind of rights to be able to share their perspectives and use their platforms to share their perspectives. Yeah, I love it because the level of cognitive dissonance that would be required to walk around in a world and act like nothing was happening around, yes. it's, it's almost, it's, it's unreal. Um, and so I, I am so glad that they are engaging in those ways. And I'm, I'm glad that um, we have, you know, Renee Montgomery who made the decision that she made. And now she's even, even beyond her, her, her social justice work, she's now in, in rare air and in a different space because she is now part owner of a professional sports team. I right. remember, I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember when the WNBA actually started. Right, right. So prior to that, um, and it's not like I played basketball, right? I'm only 5'3", but I was I was a huge basketball fan growing up and still am and knew that when women graduated college, if, if they wanted to continue a professional career more often than not, they had to go to Italy or Spain or somewhere else where there right. were professional women's teams. And so to see the WNBA come about and it was like, this is phenomenal. And so now in just what really is a relatively short period of time, you have a young woman who was playing a sport was playing on the team and now she owns part of the team. That is amazing. Amazing. And that also speaks to, I think, some of the shifting and changing that we are seeing um, for women in athletics beyond just being on the, I shouldn't say just being on the field, that's minimizing, but beyond being on the field or on the court, um, 
many of them are now moving into front office positions. Yep. In the NBA and the MLB um, and MLS with the, the professional soccer, we are seeing more women who are becoming general managers and, and all these sorts of things. And that's phenomenal because, you know, the way that our gender stereotypes move that sports is a, is a man's domain only and that there's no space for women, especially in the leadership circles. And now we're seeing that finally people are understanding that absolutely women are phenomenal leaders and, and have great business minds and can run a sports team quite well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, I think, I look forward to being able to have conversations where, um, where we don't talk about it, where we don't even need to talk about it because it's the norm, right? I mean, in uh, across sports, we're seeing, you know, women coaches in the NFL, we're seeing women coaches in the NBA. Um, you know, I mean, think about it, like we've seen male coaches in the WNBA since its inception, right? I mean, that's just, that is just part of it. And so to be able to just see the engagement um, is, is important, but let's not forget, we've come a long way, but <laughs> we, we collectively being the sports industry have a very long way to go. And I think that was very evident with the NCAA and their women's, you know, championship tournament versus the men's championship tournament in March Madness. Um, there's, there's just a, a long, a long way to go. Very long way. I long for the day that I'm watching an NFL game and I have now seen a, a woman official in the NFL game. And I long for the day that the commentators won't say that's so-and-so she's doing such a great job Yep. as though anything else would be acceptable, but besides a great job, like that, that role is important as a part of the sport. Clearly she knows what she's doing or she wouldn't be out there. So, that's right. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. So to bring it up a little bit, we've, we've talked about young people. We've talked about representation. Um, if anybody is thinking this, this episode will actually be called represent. It's, it's kind of a play on pop culture from the nineties, as well as what Luke does as an attorney. Yes. Uh, but before we get out of here, Luke, I, I want to talk to you um, about legacy. Yes. And um, I know you to be an attorney, but I also know you to be a great dad and a wonderful husband and a really good friend and a leader in so many community spaces. So I'm going to hit you with this, this question. <laughs> uh, hit me. I'm ready. When, when they retire your Jersey, so to speak, mm -hmm. and you're sitting, hanging out with your wife and the kids are grown and all of that. And you're just kind of chilling. This is going to be like in a hundred years because I don't see you slowing down anytime soon, but <laughs> When they retire your jersey, what do you what do you hope your legacy will will be? What do you hope to leave? Yeah. Um. You know what's funny when people ask you questions like this, like I swear now that I'm like a dad, or maybe it's just that I'm older, and you, unfortunately, especially you know, kind of in these COVID times and beyond, we've lost people like life is such a gift. It's not promised. Like you get asked a question like that. And it's like, there's this pause of quietness and you're like, oh my God, don't, don't get all emotional. Right. People don't need to hear the emotion. Um, but it's, it's such a great question to think about. And for me, it's, it's a bit of, um, an, an easy answer. Um, and, and that answer is first, I'd love my legacy to be exactly what, how you just introduced me. Right. And, and to be a, uh, a loving husband, um, a, a great dad, um, and uh, a, a good friend. I mean, I think that's, 
that's it, right? I mean, I always have conversations even with athletes about your identity and athletes identity. And, and I've had that same conversation with attorneys even and done presentations on attorney identity. And we're so much more than just lawyers. We're counselors, we're advisors, we're board members, we're this, that, and the other, right? And, and But I will tell you, I hope that when someone talks about my life after I'm gone, that they talk about the fact that I cared most about educating and protecting people. I mean, to me, those are the two words that just resonate um, in my heart in terms of just why I do what I do. When, you know, I get asked as, as, <laughs> as you do to get involved in a lot of different things. And unfortunately you have to say no to, to quite a bit. And the lens that I always look through when I'm evaluating and getting involved with something is, am I able to like educate people Am I able to protect people? So I was adopted. Um, I was uh, I was adopted. I was in foster care for a little bit um, before I was adopted, and uh, and so for me, like young people going through foster care, going through adoption, um, has is always something that's been meaningful. And so I'm on the board of the National Youth Advocate Program, uh, which focuses on young people and and helping young people through those those challenges, um, helping families. Uh, reunite and helping um, foster parents with the support that they need to, to provide a loving, caring home for somebody. To me, like that's, again, checks the box of protecting. Am I protecting someone else? Anomaly for me is all about educating. Being a lawyer is about educating my clients and ultimately protecting them. Um, like the things that I'm doing, right? It's just, can I, can I, can I make an impact? Can I help? Um, and, and sometimes that, that's helped by leading and sometimes that's just helped by being a listening ear, by being a support, by following. And um, I just, you know, I just hope that uh, that people will say, man, that dude had a lot of energy. Um, he was really positive and uh, he really, you know, he really helped to educate and protect other people. Like it was to him, it was about selfless service. If somebody says that about me, hey, I would say, Cheers, toss a shot back, celebrate my life, turn up the music, let's go. That is so everything that I know you to be. I am so grateful for our time together. Thank you, friend of mine, for being on my little podcast. Um, just as a reminder to the listeners, this is Luke Fedlam, partner at Port of Right, dad, husband, uh, leader and founder of Anomaly Sports Group, educator of athletes. Please be sure to check out his Protecting Your Possibilities podcast. I'm going to drop a link to that as well as Luke's social media in the show notes so that it will be easy for you to find. Have a good evening, friend. Take care. I will ah, see you when we all gather again. Yes, I look forward to it. Thank you so much for having me. Um, just excited for what you're doing. It really is making an impact. So well done. Congratulations. And again, just thanks for letting me be a little part of it. Awesome. Thank you. Today's one last thing is from basketball great, author and activist, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He said, be more concerned with your character than your reputation, because your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely what others think you are.
Thank you for joining me for another episode of Inscribing Inclusion. A special thanks to my guest, Luke Fedlam. Luke, it's always great to chat with you. Please be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. Follow the podcast on Instagram at Inscribing Inclusion and on Twitter at Inscribing Pod. Of course, you're always welcome to send me an email at inscribinginclusion at gmail.com. Thanks so much for your time and joining me on this journey. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you.